Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 19. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen none, no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So we're going to cover all of these verses tonight. So the first thing I want to pull out is I love what Jesus does here. Uh, in verse 7 and following. If you remember where we left off last week, John the Baptist has sent two of his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one or should we look for another? If you look at the context of the gospel accounts of this story, you'll see that when the disciples came and asked him about this, Jesus was standing in front of a crowd of people teaching when this happened. So this crowd of people hears John the Baptist's disciples say, John wants to know, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? And so John has now looked very, very wishy-washy to this crowd of people. Jesus, as you know, tells his disciples, you go back and tell John what you hear and what you've seen. And he gives them prophecy and he goes, sends them back. But immediately realizing that John has looked weak in front of this crowd, Jesus turns back to the crowd and he says to him, when you guys went out in the wilderness to go see John the Baptist, did you go out to see a reed swayed by the wind? Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? He said, no, but let me tell you what you did go out to see. You went out to see a prophet and not only a prophet, you went out to see the man of men born of women. None has risen greater than John the Baptist. Now we're going to deal with that phrase in just a second. But what I want to do for just a brief bit is point out the fact that when John the Baptist said the lowest thing he ever said about Jesus, Jesus said the greatest thing he ever said about John. Isn't that cool? When John was having a low moment, when John was having a down moment, Jesus didn't get upset with him. Jesus actually bragged on him. And here's why. Two main, there's lots of reasons, but two main reasons I want to pull out. The first one is this. If disappointment involves any type of surprise, God can't be disappointed with us. And I think disappointment does involve a little bit of surprise because when we're disappointed, we're like, oh, we were kind of hoping that wouldn't happen or, man, I didn't expect that. You know what I'm saying? Disappointment involves some type of a surprise. Well, is God ever surprised? Is there anything God doesn't know? No, he knows everything already before it even plays out. All the days written for us were already written in his book before one of them came to be. There's nothing about us he doesn't already know. So he's not disappointed when, he, when we fail. And on top of that, the Bible actually says that he sees the finished product. When he looks at us, he sees the finished product. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Luke chapter 22. See, a lot of times, if you're like most people, when we fail, 
And when we have a down period, when we lose faith, if you will, when we get dejected or discouraged, when we doubt, when we question, when our faith gets weak, we tend to beat ourselves up or allow the enemy to beat us up and then we help him. But in Luke chapter 22, look at verses 31 through 34. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, to set the stage to understand what's really going on here, when Jesus first meets Peter, his name is Simon. And when he meets him, we see it in the Gospel of John's account. He says, you are Simon. One day you will be Peter. Then Matthew 16 Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And they all list different names. And G then Peter says, but what about, I mean, sorry, Jesus says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Flesh and blood hasn't opened your eyes. And I say, you are Peter now. At this moment, you've become that new creation. You are Peter. And upon this rock, not you, but your faith, the profession of your faith, I will build my church. So Jesus says, you will, be, you will be Peter one day. And when he makes his profession of his faith and God opens his eyes to who he is, he says, you are Peter now. But now in the last week of Jesus's life, he turns to Peter and he says, um, Simon, Simon. And it's interesting, he calls him by his old name now when he's already said, you're now Peter but he calls him by his old name, and it's to get his attention to the fact that even though you're a new creation, you're going to look like the old guy for a little bit. And then he says, um, Satan has asked to sift you all. In the Greek, actually, the first you is plural. Satan has demanded to have you, meaning all the disciples. But I have prayed for you, and that's singular. That's why some of your translations will have a third Simon. Some of their translations will say, I prayed for you, Simon. That third Simon is not actually in the Greek but it was added by some translations to illustrate the fact that Jesus is saying, I prayed for you, Simon. But what does Peter say? He says, oh, by the way, Jesus says, I prayed for you. And when you've returned, you're going to fail. But when you return, uh, uh, strengthen your brothers. And Peter says, actually, you don't know me real well. I'm, I'm willing to go to prison and death for you. And then Jesus says, you're going to deny you even know me before the rooster crows three times. You're going to deny know me three times before the rooster crows. But listen to how he says it. He says, I tell you, Peter. That's awesome. Because he says to him, you're going to look like the old guy, but I see the finished product. Oh, write this down and look at it later on. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says this, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will finish it. So Jesus, when John is having a really low time and he's weak, Jesus says, I love that guy. And you, he turns to the crowd and says, I don't want you thinking bad about him either. Because that's my child, that's my project, and he's awesome. And of a man born of women, none has risen greater than John the Baptist. Now, we'll come back to the phrase in a second, or a little bit later, maybe not a second, but a little bit later in our study, as to why he said, but whoever's least in the kingdom is greater than him. But Jesus then goes on, go back to Matthew 11, and he starts to brag on John in another way as well. He then goes on and he says, and not only was he a prophet, this is the one of whom is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Go to Malachi chapter 3. 
Malachi, by the way, is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you're in Matthew with us here, you just back up one book. Go to Malachi chapter 3 and look at verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. All right, so Jesus says to them, hey, let me tell you, not only was he a prophet, this is the one that Malachi was prophesying about that was going to come and prepare the way before me. And then he goes on and says something even more. Keep your finger in Malachi uh, still. Go back to Matthew 11. Keep your finger in Malachi, but keep, go back to chapter 11. And then he goes on and he says something else, though. And he says to them this. He says, and if you're willing to accept it, he's Elijah who is to come. He says, if you're willing to accept it, that's in verse um, 14. He says, if you're willing to accept it, he's Elijah who is to come. He has ears to hear, let him hear. Go back to Malachi chapter 4. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, there also was a prophecy about the fact that Elijah was going to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Look at verse 5 of chapter 4 of Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the prophecy said that God was going to send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So Jesus says to them, he says, if you're willing to accept it, John was Elijah, who is to come. He was ears to hear, let him hear. So what we're going to do for a little bit right now is we're going to chase a rabbit. Like I've told you before, I don't like chasing rabbits unless we can catch them. And if we catch them, they taste good. This is a rabbit we can chase. We will catch it. And I believe it's going to taste pretty cool. But we're going to chase a rabbit tonight because Jesus has just said that John the Baptist was the coming of Elijah. But in John chapter 1, when they asked him, are you Elijah? John said, I'm not. Go with me to John chapter 1. Let's take a look at it. Look at verses 19 through 28. John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, Interestingly enough here, they come and ask Jesus, are you the one? And are you Elijah? And he says, what? He said, no. They asked John. Did I say Jesus? I'm sorry. They came to John and asked him, are you Elijah? And he said, no. So how do we deal with this? Jesus has said, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And they asked John, are you Elijah? And he said, no. Now, in order to deal with this, we have to go to Matthew 17 to begin our little study here of God's word to answer this question. Go to Matthew chapter 17. Look at verses 1 through 13. 
And it says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led him up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, interestingly enough, when they saw Elijah there in the Mount of Transfiguration, they, they asked, they said, Jesus, why do the scribes, the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come? And he says, I'm going to tell you, Elijah will come. He's still to come. That's how he words it. He says, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. That's future. Yet I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did to him whatever they wanted. And that's when they understood he was talking about John the Baptist. So how could John not be Elijah, but be Elijah? Well, here's the, here's the answer. As you hopefully understand, a lot of prophecy has two parts. There's a first fulfillment, a partial fulfillment, and the ultimate fulfillment. Jesus offered the kingdom to the nation of Israel. And if the nation of Israel had received him as the Messiah and not rejected him, John would have been the fulfillment of this prophecy because Elijah was sent to them. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Go to Luke chapter 1. Go to Luke chapter 1. And look at verses 13 through 17. <clears throat> In Luke chapter 1, verse 13, angel speaking to Zechariah, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Did anybody notice the quote there from Malachi 4? How he's going to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and so on? But he's going to go in the power and the spirit of Elijah. So was he... Elijah himself? The answer is no. But did he go in the power and the spirit of Elijah? Yes, he did. And if the nation of Israel had responded to the offer of the kingdom and salvation by turning to Jesus as the Messiah, he would have been the fulfillment of the Elijah coming before. But here's where it gets tricky. God knows how it's all going to play out before it, before it does. 
but it doesn't remove man's responsibility. Go with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Yes. Mm -hmm. There's a song that goes, uh, there's a song of Elijah that says, uh, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Is that talking about John the Baptist, or is that actually talking about Elijah? I, I can't answer for whoever wrote that song, These Are the Days of Elijah, or whatever. I, I can't answer whether or not he was talking about John the Baptist or whatever. But in answer to your question, I'm going to show you from Scripture, I believe Elijah is literally still going to come. And I'm going to show you that from Scripture. We'll get there. Go to Isaiah 53, though. Go to Isaiah 53, look at verses 1 through 6. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. According to this prophecy about the Messiah, about Jesus, we know this is referring to Jesus because if we go to Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading from this passage and he's curious. Is Isaiah talking about himself or somebody else? And Philip explains to him that this is fulfillment with Jesus. According to this prophecy about the Messiah, was, does the prophecy say that he's going to be received or rejected? Rejected. So here's the thing. God gives everyone a choice, but he already knows what their choice is going to be. So that's why Jesus worded it the way he worded it in Matthew chapter 11. If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. By the way, does anybody remember else where Jesus says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear? He said that a lot in a certain book of the Bible. In Revelation, in the message to the churches. For those of us who have believed that Jesus is the Messiah, he was the fulfillment of Elijah for us. He was the fulfillment of Elijah for us because what does the Bible teach is going to happen? We're going to be raptured at the end of the church age. We're going to be taken to go be with the Lord. And then he's going to finish what he started in the prophecy of the Daniel chapter 70. Uh, uh, sorry, Daniel chapter 9 verses 20 through 27 and the 77s. And actually, the Bible says that there's going to be two witnesses in Jerusalem. And I'm going to show you from Scripture, I believe without question, one of the two witnesses is going to be Elijah. That Elijah has come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. John was the, the fulfillment of that. John came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And for those who are willing to accept it, that was the fulfillment of the prophecy of Elijah coming before the day of the Lord. But there's another coming. Remember, he's coming back to the earth. And actually, that's why Jesus said he's already come, but he will come and will restore all things. Because... John the Baptist came and offered the kingdom or offered the response of repentance to be able to enter the kingdom. But God knew that they were going to reject him. Folks, I've said this to you over and over. I'll say it to you again. God already knows what choices you're going to make, but you don't. So don't make the wrong choice. <laughs> make the right choice. I had a man say to me one time, he said, Jim, if God already knows what tie I'm going to wear tomorrow to work, I really don't have a choice. I'm like, yes, you do. 
God's knowledge of what you're going to do tomorrow does not remove your responsibility. And in the same way, there was an opportunity for the nation of Israel to respond, yet God already knew that they were going to reject him. That's why in John chapter 1, go to John chapter 1, let me show you what I'm talking about. John chapter 1, look at verse 5, uh, verse 6. It says in verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let me ask you this question. Um, he came to his own people, and they rejected him on the whole. There were some Jews individually that got saved, but as a whole, the nation rejected him. But to all who did receive him, what happened? They became children of God. They were the ones who had eyes to see and ears to hear. That's why in the Revelation letters to the seven churches, as God writes to the churches, you'll know that just because you say you're in the church doesn't mean you're a believer. And that's why he witnesses every one of those things and the, the commendations and the warnings and the promises and all that with he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, and here's the deal. John the Baptist was not Elijah himself. But he went in the power and the spirit of Elijah. And for all who were willing to respond to Jesus when he came the first time, he was Elijah who was to come for them. He was the Elijah who was to come for you and me. Because when Elijah himself comes back to this earth, we'll already be gone. And he's going to come back again. Because Jesus himself in Matthew 17 said, Elijah does come and will restore all things but he's already come. Do you understand? It's a little bit tricky, but he's a fulfillment in type of the actual fulfillment of Elijah coming. And I want to show you from Scripture, a lot of Scripture, that I believe the Bible teaches pretty clearly that Elijah will be one of those two witnesses. Go to Revelation chapter 11. And look at verses 1 through 14. John says, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. By the way, how long is 42 months? Does anybody know? That's three and a half years. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Does anybody know how long 1,260 days is? Three and a half years. That's important. Don't, don't lose sight of that. That's four, three and a half years. Okay. Now listen closely. They're prophesying for three and a half years. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike their earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. 
fire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples from tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath, breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Again, we see another picture of how the, fa the fact that God already knows how it's all going to play out. He's already telling when that earthquake happens in Jerusalem, how many people are actually going to die in that earthquake. He's already seen it all. But don't miss this. There are two witnesses and they're prophesying in Jerusalem for how long? And they have the power to shut up the sky so that it doesn't rain for the whole time that they're prophesying, which is how long? And not only that, if anybody tries to kill them, They'll be devoured with fire that comes from them. And not only that, they have the ability to do plagues. Kind of like Moses did, where they turned the water to blood and all that stuff. I'm going to show you from Scripture, I believe without question, that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. There's a lot of Scripture for this. Now, let me just say something to you. Some of you who have grown up back in the era of prophecy, you've always heard that it was going to be Moses. Sorry, not Moses. It was going to be Elijah and Enoch who were the two witnesses because everybody said these are the two people in the Bible that never died. You know, Elijah never died. He was taken in the chariots of fire up to heaven. And Enoch walked with God and he was no more. And so many prophecy teachers for years said that because of Hebrews 9, 27, that it's appointed for man once to die and then face the judgment, that these two guys have to come back and die because it's appointed for everybody to die once. Here's the problem with that. First off, Enoch wasn't even a Jew. So he probably wouldn't be one of the two witnesses to preach to the Jews in Jerusalem. And secondly, how many of you, show of hands, believe that you will be raptured prior to this time period? All right. If you're alive on the earth at that time when the rapture happens, you won't die. You're just going to get your new body. You're going to be transformed. You're going to be caught up like Enoch and caught up like Elijah. Are you going to have to come back and die now? You, you see the, fa the fallacy of that kind of theology? But let me show you some other stuff that's pretty interesting and pretty cool. When Jesus appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, who were the two guys that showed up at the same time to testify to the fact that he was the one? Moses and Elijah. By the way, they represent the law and the prophets. God used Moses to write the first five books of the Bible, the law and the prophets. Elijah is the kind of the prophet of prophets. By the way, Elijah is one that dealt a lot with fire and the fire that came down and uh, took the altar and he was carried up in the chariots of fire. Moses is the one, is the one that God used to do the plagues and all this. Um, Moses is referred to in Deuteronomy chapter 18 as how God was going to send another prophet just like him, you know. And then, then of course, we have Elijah, the prophecy of how Elijah is going to come. Go to James chapter 5 and look at verse 17. As you start looking at scripture, you start to see a lot of interesting Little clues and a little hints. By the way, when the two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration talking with Jesus, Luke's account, I believe it is, actually points out that they were talking with, all, with Jesus about what all must soon take place in Jerusalem. 
Isn't that interesting? That they were going to talk with him about what was going to take place in Jerusalem. Look at what it says in James chapter 5, verse 17. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for how long? Three and a half years, three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Isn't that interesting? That when he prayed, it didn't rain for three and a half years. I think a foreshadowing and a picture of what was to come. Also, I want to talk about how Moses and Elijah died. They're both very interesting. Go with me to 2 Kings chapter 2. It is correct. Elijah never died. I don't believe that means he has to come back and die. But Elijah was taken up into heaven in 2 Kings chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 14. Second Kings chapter two it says, now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here. And the Lord is for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel and the sons of the prophets who were there in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho and the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elisha said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you've asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be for you, so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two pieces and he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other and Elisha went over. So we see here that God kind of took up Elijah into heaven. All right. He didn't take the other prophets that way, but in this in this case, he did. So he didn't die, but Moses did. But if you ever studied the death of Moses, you may find something interesting about it. Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 34. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 through 12. By the way, I wonder if the fact that when Elijah, Elijah was taken, his clothes stayed behind him as part of where Tim LaHaye got his, thinking everybody's clothes were left behind when they were raptured. I don't know. But... Uh, but you got Deuteronomy chapter 34. Look closely what it says about Moses' death. It says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan. 
at all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died, and his eye was undimmed and his, dimmed and his vigor unabated. In other words, he didn't die of natural causes. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in, in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the, the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So here we see that when Moses died, he died in the presence of God and God buried him. But nobody knows where his body is. Isn't that interesting? You know how the Jews treated their revered leaders. They had special tombs made for them and all this. But interestingly enough, we don't know where Moses' body is. And we also see something else about Moses' body in the book of Jude. Go to Jude, verse 9. Jude, verse 9. His eyes were unnamed, so he could see the promised land, but he couldn't go into it. Yeah, he could see it. And yeah, he could see it, but he couldn't go into it. Actually, that was a, a, a tricky question someone asked me one time when I was a young preacher preaching at a church. I was on a traveling ministry, and I was preaching at this church. And this guy came up and he said, let me ask you a question, preacher boy, you know your Bible. He said, did Moses ever get into the promised land? I'm like, no. He goes, yes, he did. On the Mount of Transfiguration. I'm like, oh, he did. He did. <laughs> look at Jude. Look at Jude verse 9, though. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, in the midst of Jude talking about these false teachers who are out there and they're claiming to have all this authority and they, 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 they command Satan and the angels, the demons to do what they want and all this stuff. And he was warning them about false teachers and saying, look, look, even the archangel Michael wouldn't just blaspheme or, or speak against the, the, uh, Satan. He would actually say, the Lord rebuke you. For, listen to me. Beware of any people out there that say that they can command Satan. And they, I tell Satan to get out of here. I tell the demons to leave and be careful because the Bible says that all authority has been given to Jesus, correct? But it also says in the book of Hebrews that we at yet do not see everything in subjection to him. In other words, God for his purposes has allowed Satan to still have some authority, has he not? So if God who has all authority has allowed Satan to have authority in certain places, who are we to think that we can just tell him to do whatever we want? And so while Jude was warning about those kind of false teachers. He made an interesting statement. He said that the archangel Michael and Satan were disputing about the body of Moses. Why would Satan even care about the body of Moses? Unless maybe God had a purpose for it. 
in the future that Satan knew about. Otherwise, who cares? Moses is done. I'm moving on to somebody else. But for some reason, Satan was interested in the body of Moses. Again, when you start putting these all together, I believe that the two witnesses are going to be Moses and Elijah. John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And if you are willing to accept the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, he is Elijah who was to come. Was he Elijah? No. But Elijah still does come. And he'll restore all things. Or actually, as he prepares the way and the Messiah comes, all things will be restored. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 11. I think that's where we're studying tonight. We're done chasing that rabbit, but I thought that would be a fun little thing to chase because there's a lot in the scripture about that. Jesus says some other things in our section of study that tonight that seemed hard for people to grasp. Look at verse 11. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Actually, folks, this isn't really that hard to interpret. Jesus is simply emphasizing the importance of getting into the kingdom. That's all what he's really doing. What he's saying is, is this. Of men born of women, there hasn't been anybody greater than John. But don't seek to be the greatest in this life because the kingdom is so much greater. He who is least in the kingdom is greater than anybody who's the most important in this life. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what he's been saying. Actually, I'm going to show you a couple of paces. He's always been saying this life is not the most important thing. It's the kingdom. That's far more important. Go to Matthew chapter 6. You're in Matthew 11. Back up to Matthew chapter 6. Look at what he says in verses 19 through 21. He says, Don't lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, don't be living for this life. Be living for the kingdom to come. Jump down to verse 31 in chapter 6. In verse 31, Jesus says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what, with what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, those who don't know God, seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In other words, Jesus keeps saying, Seek the kingdom. You know what? Of men born of women, there hasn't been any way greater than John. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Go to Mark chapter 9. Look at verses 43 through 48. Mark 9, 43 through In Mark 9, verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom, kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, you know full well Jesus wasn't saying that's how you get into heaven by cutting off the part of you that, that's sinning. But he was illustrating the importance of how important it is to not live for this life but to get into the kingdom. And that's why Jesus has said simply, of men born of women, none has risen greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the least in the kingdom will be greater than him because it's far better to be in the kingdom. But then he says something else which has caused people a lot more of a bugaboo. 
In verse 12, Jesus says that the kingdom has suffered violence. Let's read how he words it here in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Okay, so what he's saying here is this. He's saying the, the, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom has suffered violence. And then the violent take it by force. And most people, and I understand that, say, what does that mean? Hopefully we can help you with that tonight. Now, first, in order to get it, we've got to remember the context. Our context and Luke's account of this same thing will help us, I think, a lot. Our context is what? We just saw that Jesus is stressing the importance of getting into the kingdom. Don't miss that. He's stressing the importance of getting into the kingdom. Go to Luke 16 and look at Luke's account of this same passage, and we will hopefully have a little bit more insight as to what Jesus is saying. In Luke 16, look at verses 14. Luke 16, verses 14 through 17. <clears throat> it says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, remember, living for this world, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then... The good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. And interesting. And then he says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So Matthew words it this way. The kingdom of God has suffered violence and violent enter it. Luke says that everyone forces his way into it. Let me paraphrase this for you. The paraphrase is this. In both, first off, both accounts, Jesus points out that the law and the prophets both spoke of how to enter the kingdom. And now John came and preached the kingdom, and he too was violently opposed. In other words, if the law and the prophets have always been pointing to the kingdom, you know Romans chapter 3 says in around verse 22 that there is a righteousness now that the law and the prophets have been testifying to, which is through Christ. The law came to, point of how to, came to bring us to the Messiah and how to come to faith. How was the law responded to by the nation of Israel? It was rejected. The prophets then came and they preached. How were they responded to? They weren't just rejected. What did they do? They killed them. John the Baptist now comes and he preaches. What did they do to him? Rejected him and killed him. And remember, Jesus said in Matthew 17, and they're going to do the same thing to the Son of Man. The kingdom of God has suffered violence. Oppression, rejection for years, but it keeps going. But with all this opposition to the kingdom, it's only those who are bold enough who are going to force their way into it. Do you understand? Jesus has said that getting into the kingdom is not easy. Getting into the kingdom is hard. Remember? Narrows the road that leads to eternal life, and hard is the way, and Few there be that find it. Folks, in the time we have left tonight, I want to be used of God to kind of walk you through this a little bit. The kingdom keeps moving forward, and it takes bold, strong, society-resisting effort to enter the kingdom. Jesus never said that it would be easy to enter the kingdom. Remember, he's teaching about the kingdom, and he says, Look, of men born of women, none has risen greater than John the Baptist. But that's not the most important thing, is who's the greatest here. The most important thing is getting into the kingdom. And if you're the least in the kingdom, you'll be greater than John the Baptist because you're in the kingdom. 
John is as well, but he's emphasizing the kingdom. And then he said, that all along the kingdom, his kingdom has suffered violence and oppression and resistance and forcefulness. You've got to be just as forceful to go against it. If you're a salmon going against the water, if you're going to make it to where you're going, you've got to be stronger than the current that you're opposing. And we need to understand that this easy believism that the church teaches, that all you got to do is just pray this prayer and you're going to heaven, is not what the Bible teaches. And that's where the rest of this context of this passage back in Matthew chapter 11 goes to. Let's go back to Matthew 11. This explains Jesus' illustration in verses 16 through 19. He says, but what shall I compare this generation to? He said, it's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. We've already seen how the nation of Israel has resisted all of God's attempts to get them to humble themselves through the law, the prophets, and John. And Jesus is going to go on and show them that they're going to do the same to the Son of God. Go with me real quickly to Luke 20. Look at verses 9 through 18. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. Here's the parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is that this that was written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus actually says, look, how can I describe this generation? How can I describe you? He said, uh, you're like when the children play in the marketplace and they wanted the other kids to get involved in the game. And, and, and they, they said, well, tell you what, we'll play the flute and you, you dance. Well, okay, maybe you're not in a party mood. We'll play a dirge. And you can beat your breast, but they wouldn't do it. And he says, John the Baptist came and he wasn't a partier. He was a hard, serious man, austere. And you rejected him. Maybe you just didn't respond that well to that. So the son of man comes and he's the dancing kind. You reject him as well. In other words, I'm trying to get you to respond and you want nothing to do with it. It's kind of like if Jesus were talk, teaching this today, he'd say the kids were lining up and saying, Red Rover, Red Rover, send someone over, but they won't come over. You don't want to come. You don't want to respond. And then he ends with this very interesting phrase there in verse 19 of Matthew 11. He says, but wisdom is justified by her deeds. Isn't that interesting? Wisdom is justified 
by your deeds. Well, in the time we have left, I'm going to take you to some scriptures, and I'm going to let the scriptures speak for themselves, and let the Spirit of God speak to you however He wants and needs to. But the Bible's very, very clear, folks, that you can profess your salvation all you want. Your actions will show the real you. We live in a day and age in which I heard a statement on the radio today, tonight as I was driving over here that one person said there were three billion Christians in America. Yes. Well, maybe it was in the world, but the number was three billion. Let's, let's be honest, even in the world, there may be three billion people that say they believe in Jesus. But just because you say it doesn't mean it's true. Wisdom will be justified by her, their deeds. You can say you know how to do stuff, but if you were actually given the opportunity to do it, could you? There's a lot of people out there that talk about their days when they were younger and how they used to be able to do this and they used to bat this bat average when I was in sports and I used to be able to throw a football that far and all that kind of stuff. And if anybody ever went and backed and checked, would, would your uh, speech match up with the actual numbers that you've been professing? Let the scripture speak to us because the scripture clearly shows us that it's not what we say, but what actually comes out of our life, which shows whether or not we really respond. Go to John chapter 2. By the way, as we go here, please understand my desire is not to make you question your salvation for a second because that's the enemy's work. Actually, in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, the scripture says his spirit testifies with our spirit for his children. If you're his, you know you're his because the spirit confirms it and you know that you're his. Yet at the same time, as we're encouraged with that, I'm also encouraged with the fact that as hard as it is to get into the kingdom, it's not me working hard to get into the kingdom. I just have to be bold enough to go and put my full faith in Jesus Christ and to tune everything else out. He's the one who takes a hold of me. He's the one that brings me into the kingdom. He's even the one that gives me the faith to do it. He who began a good work in you. That's why it's sad to me. So many people I've asked over the years, if you died today, would you go to heaven? They'd say, these are church people who would say, I hope so because I believe in Jesus and I've been trying to live a good life. Did you catch that? I hope so. And I've been trying to do my part. That's the people that don't understand and they don't have salvation. John chapter 2, look at verses 23 through 25. Now when he, this is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. These people believed in his name, but he didn't seal the deal because he knew it wasn't real faith. Go to James chapter, chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 27. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this. 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Go over to chapter 2 and look at verses uh, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works or evidence of that faith? Can that faith or that type of faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself does not have, and it doesn't have works, is dead. Now, don't misunderstand. He's not saying that you have to go give somebody something to eat or else you're not saved. He's not saying that. But what he was saying was is this. If you see that someone's in need and you just say, be warm and be filled, those are just words. Do the words do anything? No. It, action is what actually would be helpful. And he's saying simply this. If you say you have faith, you say you're a follower of Jesus, that doesn't do you any good. That's just words. If someone were to watch your life, though, and see your actions, is there evidence of the Spirit in you? Go to verses 19 through 26. You, in chapter 2 of James, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, I'm going to let you in on something that you may not have ever known. This section of the book of James almost made the book of James not make it into the canon of Scripture. Because the men who were deciding which books of the Bible were to be picked and to actually be the ones that they believed were written and inspired by God, they had some high and really strict criteria. The book of Hebrews almost didn't make it because we still to this day don't know who wrote it. And one of the criteria was you had to know who the author was. And so this passage here almost made the book of James not get in because they thought that he was contradicting Paul, where Paul said we're saved by faith alone and not by works. But all James is simply saying is if you say you have faith, but there's no evidence of it, that's not faith. Many believed in his name, but he wouldn't entrust himself to them because he knew they really didn't have saving faith. You say you believe. Demons believe. That's not enough. They shudder. And so the, the real issue of whether or not we're really saved is the evidence of the spirit within us. Second Corinthians 13, five says it this way. Examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Is Jesus in you? Oh, you don't know further evidence of your salvation. When you go through trials, do you stick or do you walk away? First John chapter two, verse 19 actually says they went out from us, but if they're of us, they would have stayed, but they're going out from us showed that they were never of us. Folks, the Bible actually says that the trials have come to prove our faith genuine. And so the question is, as people watch your life, is there evidence of your salvation? Not just that you profess that you have salvation. Let me close with Galatians chapter five. We're going to look at verses 19 and following. Galatians 5, verse 19 and following. It says, now the works or the evidence of the flesh are evident. 
There's sexual immorality, there's impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Please don't misunderstand. This is not saying that if you've ever had a fit of rage or a fit of anger, you're not going to heaven. But it's saying that if you live like this, this is evidence that the spirit is not in you. And that you are actually someone of the flesh. It doesn't matter how much you go to church and how much you say you're a Christian. There's going to be an evidence of the spirit within you. There's going to be a transformation. The new creation, that new creature that you become will be evident. It may be a progressively slow process, but you should be growing in your faith and your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There should be a progression. If there's been no real change, you better examine, is Jesus in you? Has there been a change? And then he goes on and says in verse 22, but the evidence of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, if we've been born again, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. Let me ask you a question. Those of you that have been Christians for long enough, that you've been in church for long enough. If you've ever been to a church business meeting, which list have you seen? The flesh or the spirit? And you know what's sad? As I've been in churches around the country, and sometimes if I'm there for a week of revival, there have been some churches that actually have business meeting in the middle of the revival. And as I have to sit through that business meeting and watch the flesh, sometimes I've felt like God told me to stand up and say something about it, and I have. And you'd be amazed at how many people have come to me afterwards and said, that's just how we do things here. Folks, it's not easy to get into the kingdom. It's been suffering violence for years and resistance for years. And the ones who enter are the ones who are strong enough to go against that and put their full faith in Jesus Christ and say no to the flesh on a daily basis and yes to the spirit. Those are the ones who are truly his. And your quote unquote wisdom will be justified by your actions or proven by your deeds. I love you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you in three weeks.